Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum... What does the mall mean to you? Has it played a role in your life? First job, first date, first taste of independence? When your parents let you roam free with middle school friends, as long as you met them by the fountain at a certain time? The mall we love to hate on has played a much bigger social and cultural role than we give it credit for, according to Alexandra Lang, who joins us. So get in, listeners. We're going to the mall next on Forum. Spending big cheese on pastries. Even if they want to, them haters can't hate me. Looking so fly, gotta get my nails done. I'm Nina Kim. Welcome to Forum. Alexandra Lang has written a book about the mall. It's escalators, food courts, it's JCPenney's incentive anti-Anne's. Also about the films like Clueless that have immortalized it. She's here to talk about all of it and hear what your mall memories are. Her book is Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of the mall. Alexandra Lang, thanks so much for coming on Forum. Thank you for having me. Really glad to have you. You have said that you were part or are part of the mall generation. Who is that? Who's the mall generation? Well, I'm not sure I should admit this, but I was born in 1973. So the bulk of my teen years were spent in the 1980s and 19, early 1990s. And I think it's basically people my age and younger who were teens in the 80s and 90s when the mall was really the place to be. So then tell me about your mall, the mall that you felt like was the place to be or that that you basically had a relationship with. My mall was South Square Mall in Durham, North Carolina, um, which was a very classic kind of mid-range mall. And I think the two stores that were most important to me there were The Gap. This is The Gap in the 80s, where it was all those beautiful piles of primary colored clothing. <laughs> um, and also Walden Books, where I would sneak ah. and read like romance novels and YA in the back that my mom didn't really want me to read. Oh my gosh, I have not thought of Walden Books in so long. Why were those stores so important to you? Well, I think that they were important to me. And this is why I think the mall looms so large in so many people's minds, because they were places where I was first starting to explore my sense of independent self. Like, what was my personal style going to be? What books did I really want to read? And the mall, because it brings together so many different types of stores, is an opportunity to go to a place and just like see and sample and try things out at a time when you're a teenager where you're really like looking for answers. Is that why you've written that the mall is personal? Like you were really finding out who you are or beginning to figure that part of yourself out? Yeah, absolutely. I think that 
things we encounter, people we encounter in our teen years really have a huge effect on all of us. Um, and one thing I found as I started, you know, researching and writing this book was that people would come back to me all the time with stories about their mall. Like what, what I felt was definitely reflected back to me in other people's experience. <laughs> so is that partly why you realized that the mall deserved a whole investigation, like a whole book? there was a lot more to it than maybe what people in your design world might think of them all. Yeah. I mean, the first stories I wrote that ended up going into the um, proposal for this book were really about the architectural elements of the mall and, you know, some famous architects that were designing malls, but not calling them malls. But the reason I knew it was a good idea for a book and it was something that would resonate with more than a design audience was really those personal stories. Like every time I brought it up, people's eyes would kind of light up and they would want to talk to me about it. And honestly, most people don't feel that way about most architecture. I mean, I do as an architecture critic, but that emotional quality really added something extra to the whole story. Well, let's see if our listeners want to talk about it too. Uh, so listeners, what was your mall or favorite hangout or go-to store? What's your mall memory? You can tell us by emailing forum at kqed.org or finding us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or at KQED Forum. And you can always call us 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. So Alexander, you also talk about how while I think you called the mall one of the most nostalgized, but also maligned, why does it get such a bad rap? <laughs> Well, uh, I think, first of all, because it is a capitalist enterprise, right? <laughs> I mean, we, our money is being extracted from our, uh, from us at the mall. And that was always part of the rationale for it, you know, to sell more things. Um, but one of the things that I find interesting about it is how, like, yes, it starts as this this capitalist enterprise, but then it takes on so many other qualities and different groups kind of take over and make new things uh, happen in it. Um, and that's partially because, you know, the mall has a long history. A lot of people think of it as new because it's always selling us newness, but the first mall was built in 1956. And if you have um, a type of building that's been around for 70 years, like it's going to change. It's going to morph and, um, you know, take on other qualities and other distinctions. Yeah. Well, we have some comments already coming in or have come in before the show. Susan writes, for me, the mall had an element of the forbidden. My dad was an immigrant and thought malls were a waste of time and hated what he saw as the materialism of it all. So I'd go in secret with a friend who had a car. Our routine, first, the limited, which claimed all my babysitting money. <laughs> then the record store. Then Macy's to try on sunglasses. Then get French fries from McDonald's and lounge by the fountain if I bought anything. I'd hide the bag when I came home. You talked about the history of the mall, but basically we we do talk about the capitalism, the materialism that this listener's dad associated with it. But but you say the origins were really about serving serving basic human functions and needs. Can you talk about that? Can you talk about who is sort of the godfather of of the mall and and what need this godfather felt like he needed <laughs> to fulfill sure i like calling him a godfather <laughs> um so the, the father or godfather of the mall um was a viennese immigrant named victor gruen who was an architect he was jewish so he fled to the u.s in 1938 
And he um, really was one of the first people people to start designing new department stores for the you know car suburbs of California. Yeah. And he saw those suburbs and especially the kind of um, shopping life of those suburbs as really messy, right? It was all of these stores and strip malls strung out along the highway. And he thought, you know, like in Vienna, there's this beautiful sidewalk culture and people can walk from store to store and get all their shopping done without, you know, parking and reparking, et cetera, et cetera. So how can I bring that to this messy American suburban landscape? And the answer was the mall. Um, and his first indoor shopping mall was built in 1956 in Edina, Minnesota. It's known as Southdale. And it actually had a restaurant indoors called the Sidewalk Cafe. So he was really trying to bring that to it. What is, I think it's called the Gruen Transfer, or am I getting that yeah. right? No, that's right. So the Gruen Transfer is basically when you, when, when shopping moves from being a chore or an errand to being a pleasure. And he saw that as happening, you know, people would arrive at the mall with their list of like three things to buy. But then along the way, they would get distracted by a scent or um, or the music or something pretty in the shop window across the space of the mall. And they would no longer just be working down their list, but they would be you know, taking pleasure in just the experience of shopping. And so what I'm struck by is you, you mentioned that Vincent Gruen is California-based. California has had a lot of influence on malls, not just Vincent Gruen or Victor Gruen. Am I getting his name right? It's Victor Gruen. It says Vincent in my script here. So I (laughs) realized that like, oh, maybe that was just a typo. Um, And uh, because I heard you say Victor. And also the fact that uh, there was another person, uh, Jerdy, I believe, uh, who was also California based with a massive influence on malls. Yeah. No, California can definitely claim, though it's debatable, to be, you know, an origin point for the mall. And that really has to do with the time and place of the development of its suburbs. But um, John Jurdy was a Los Angeles-based architect. And I kind of put him as like the third great innovator of malls. His innovation was, uh, and I quote this, to make shopping beside the point, uh, because by the 1980s, Gruen's idea of the mall had become slightly stale, and Jerdy really thought you had to pump up the volume. So he's the architect behind the Mall of America, who instead of a fountain, put a roller coaster in the center of the mall. So really trying to rethink the mall as a center of entertainment, amusement, events, all those kinds of things? Yeah, he was like, okay, you can shop on the side, but you can also go to Disneyland while you're at the mall. Um, So the draw of the mall would be that entertainment, which is especially appealing to families, you know, kind of something for everyone. And then, uh, you know, once you were done with the roller coaster, you would go off to the side and be like, oh, wait, I do need to pick up something at Macy's or, oh, wait, why don't we just get dinner here? So there would be this spillover over from the central theme park experience to the rest of the mall and the stores there. We're talking about the mall with Alexandra Lang, who's written a book about it called Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of the mall. Alice writes, my first job ever was at the mall in the 80s. The store sold hooked rug kits. 
That's all. Just hooked rugs. I'd stand at the front of the store, which was nearly devoid of product, hooking rugs with images like red, yellow, and blue balloons on shaggy white background. Sad clown face on shaggy white background. Two cross candy canes on shaggy white background. It was a relaxing job because we had few customers. And as you might guess, I liked hooking rugs. Now hooked rugs are coming back. The mall comes full circle. Well, uh, you were just talking about entertainment. Sorry, that sounds amazing. Like, just... <laughs> do you want to say anything? Do you have a reaction to that about these oh, specialized stores? I do. Stores? Sorry, I, do. I, just, I, I mean, I think she's right. Hook drugs are coming back. And, you know, kind of one version of the rebirth of the mall is many more um, kind of independent shops that are more specialized so i think a craft store or hooked rug store like i feel like that could happen at a mall yeah well one of the things that you were saying happened at a mall were events and we're going to go into the break listening to tiffany an 80s pop star who used concerts at the mall to make a name for herself the song is i think we're alone now and i guess the video for the song uses footage from those concerts so uh, let's listen to a little bit of peak 80s mall culture going into the break you're listening to forum i'm mina kim stay with us Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the mall, those temples of commerce where you can find sneakers, bath products, a hot dog on a stick, and maybe even yourself, according to Alexandra Lang, a design critic who has a new book called Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of malls. You, our listeners, are weighing in with your mall memories, your mall hangouts or stores. Whether you go to the mall much uh, these days, and if not, why not? Did you used to go more? Tell us, 866-733-6786. Post on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or email us, forum at kqed.org. Andrew in San Rafael. Hi, Andrew. Hi, how are you doing today? I'm well. What would you like to share? Yeah, so my memories of the mall, I remember, um, I'm going to list, what is it, um, the Danbury Fair Mall, 
Uh, this is in Fairfield County in Connecticut, like right outside New York City. And it was a pretty big mall. Uh, had a carousel in there. But um, my memories of growing up as a teenager and, you know, going in there and, you know, finding out who I was and how I wanted to express myself. And, of course, the store that called my name is Hot Topic. Uh, And, you know, oh, my gosh. Like, it was a store that was scary. You know, the outside, (laughs) you could smell the aroma of it, you know, as you walked by. And I remember just wanting to be so cool and passing by and like just being so afraid to go in because I was not that person yet, but wanted so bad to be that goth, to be that punk, you know? That is such a great <laughs> it, story. It, yeah, yeah, it was lovely. And I, I remember my first purchase going in there feeling so judged, so scared, everyone looking at me. I got this wonderful black leather wallet with blue flames, a large chain. And my family was like, we do not support that. <laughs> Andrew, thanks so much for sharing that story. Love it. We've got a comment kind of along similar lines. A listener tweets, as teens in the 90s when Nordstrom Cafe at Valley Fair in San Jose had coffee for a quarter in a drop box, me and a bunch of punks with bright red and green mohawks would sit and smoke for hours on the outdoor patio or food court, a meeting spot for plans later. It's interesting that... um, it was such a place for teens and for coming of age. And the stories that we're hearing are really about that time. And, and that's what it meant for you too, Alexandra. But but historically, the real target audience was basically upper middle class white women, right? Yes, that's correct. Um, because the early malls were built to serve the newly built suburbs, um, you know, in the post-war era. And who was in those suburbs primarily? Um, young white mothers and their small children. So the mall was meant to make their kind of daily run of errands more pleasant. They could meet their friends. There was a carousel for their kids. Um, But it, and they were also, you know, the ones who eventually like had had the checking accounts, had the credit cards and were spending money. The fact that the mall turns out to be this great space for teenagers is kind of an accident. Um, and there's always been a lot of ambivalence in terms of mall management in t- about how much they wanted to encourage teenagers. Like on the one hand, you have stores like Hot Topic and also video game arcades that are catering to teenagers. But on the other hand, you have things like mall codes of conduct that sometimes don't allow large groups of teenagers to be there without an adult. So is that, I think you mentioned that food courts were a way to keep people there, but that was really the entree for teens. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think the food court is really important because uh, it's it's cheap to buy food, you know, I mean, even if you only had a couple of dollars, like you could at least, you know, get a drink at Orange Julius and hang out with your friends. So it's really kind of this low barrier to entry for, you know, spending a few dollars and then hanging out all day. Obviously, this is why the merchants aren't necessarily so happy with teens. But I do think the food court is a really important kind of locus of teen activity. Well, let me go to Hills in Santa Barbara. Hi. Hills, is that you? Hi. Um, this. Uh, can you hear me? I can. Go right ahead. Hi. Um, thank you for the subject and the author. It's... Um... It's near and dear because I spent a lot of my youth in the mall, as did a lot of the people I grew up with in the San Fernando Valley uh, in, you know, Southern California. We had a mall that was fairly prototypical. It was called the Topanga Plaza. It's <laughs> a different name now, but 
It was anchored by um, May Company, Montgomery Wards, and Broadway. Back then, Montgomery Wards, you could buy snakes, turtles, all kinds of craziness. But we had an ice skating rink there every Friday night. All, the whole, entire junior high and high school and even some sixth graders would congregate. And it was only a couple dollars to get in and a dollar to rent skates. And, you know, there were budding romances there. I mean, it was absolutely spectacular. And then um, they had an incredible fountain at Topanga Plaza. It was these, like, fishing line strings, like three or four stories tall with, like, sort of mineral oil dripping down them that looked like sort of rain coming down these strings. It was, you know, for us as kids, it was magical. And the the whole mall, and we had a... um, we had a poster shop called the Light Brigade that had black light posters, as you can remember from, you know. <laughs> right, how, how cool those were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, so, I, I totally right. know that mall, and I also, uh, my mom actually worked at the Broadway, but not at the Topanga Plaza. She worked at the Broadway at the Oaks Mall, and of course the Broadway is no longer. Thank you for, for that trip down memory lane. Oh, my God, Hills. Um but what I what I'm hearing Hills talk about, and also what you were just saying before his comment, Alexandra, is that the the mall is both this really public space and also this private space, right? Of, of so many things and activities that needed to be run and and you know had to have policies and and, and rules and security and other things around it. How did those things collide? Yeah, it's really interesting because a lot of times people will talk about the mall as a public space. Like they, you know, in their town, it may be the only space where people could congregate, you know, like um, the caller was saying at the skating rink, you know, there's no outdoor skating rink. There's no, you know, kind of public space, but malls are, you know, private enterprises. And um, in a lot of different ways, like that both has made them safer because they, you know, don't have car traffic because there's private mall security because there's the kind of passive surveillance of all the shop owners, but that can also um, kind of make them, you know, more dangerous for some teens because all of the security guards, you know, may, you know, take a harder look at say black and brown teens. You know, there's a lot of media um, kind of like, in black TV shows where kids are wrongfully accused of shoplifting and that's reflected in, you know, real life experiences. So, yeah. And plus the whole history of the mall to what was basically, they, they came about because of white flight in a way they were leaving cities in droves, but still wanting sort of that experience of being able to shop through, you know, a busy plaza or street or something like that with lots of stores along the way. Yes, absolutely. They were designed essentially for these white suburban housewives. And a lot of the early language of the malls in the 1950s and 60s talks about kind of a cleaner version of downtown. So Hmm. it's like the housekeeping at the mall, like your housekeeping at home, is of a supposedly higher standard than it is in the actually public downtown that you've left. Yeah. So it's, it's such an interesting interaction. And uh, you also referenced this Supreme Court case about whether protests were allowed at malls. Tell us about that and what that sort of created in terms of people's ideas of what a mall is. Yeah, it's really interesting. The first Supreme Court case uh, basically looking at whether a mall is public or private around the, the 
issue of whether like you can protest at a mall is in 1968. Um, and the majority opinion saying that you could protest at a mall was actually written by Thurgood Marshall. And he has a really interesting passage where he basically says, malls are becoming the new main street. If we say people can't protest at malls, then they won't have access to the kind of public forum that they have historically. So, you know, we have to keep malls public so that people can actually, you know, protest and have an audience and be heard. Um, now, over the years, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court has become much more conservative. And so later rulings on the mall um, basically declared it a private space and, and kicked the decision making back to the state. So as it is now, in a few states, you can protest at the mall. And one of those is California. And there's a new case um, about uh, the mayoral candidate, Rick Caruso, and one of his malls. Um, but in most other states, you can't protest at the mall. And, you know, Black Lives Matter protesters were arrested at the Mall of America a few years ago. Mm. We're talking with Alexandra Lang about the history of the mall. Her new book is Meet Me by the Fountain. Alexandra Lang is an architecture critic. Uh, she's written for The Atlantic, The New York Times, The New Yorker, and is also a columnist for Bloomberg City Lab. You, our listeners, are joining us with your memories of the mall, what you think of malls, whether you go there much, any questions you have about this history that you're learning uh, Noel writes, when I was young, the mall meant school band trips, first dates, awkward double dates, sneaking into the access quarters, playing tag, shoplifting, arcades, movie theaters, bad food, allowance draining, chain store consumerism, mall Santas. Where are the new roller rinks, movie theaters, arcades, performance spaces, bowling alleys, and immersive and themed experiences? Seeing so many malls nearly empty, vast hallways of closed storefronts, desolate electric massage chairs, seems all like a missed opportunity. It's interesting when you were talking about the Supreme Court case, uh, or at least Thurgood Marshall's ruling, it was really framing the mall as a public space, as a public square. And Noel is writing here about a missed opportunity in these vast hallways for immersive experiences with, with something I think sounds like more of a, of a civic role than, say, desolate electric massage chairs. <laughs> what do you think of that, Alexandra? Yeah, I mean, I think that the malls have uh, stepped into the breach in a lot of places where there isn't really a, you know, kind of public civic environment. Um, you know, one of the things I talk about at the beginning of the book is how in the late 40s and 1950s, the U.S. government was subsidizing the mortgages for all these single family homes in the suburbs, and they were also subsidizing the building of highways, but they weren't subsidizing a space in between those two things where people could come together and not just be individuals. So I think Gruen recognized that there was a need for this space and malls became those spaces. But if you take them away, if they become desolate, they're not really being replaced by other physical spaces. Hmm. Um, and when people talk about Americans feeling disconnected, I think there is a real need and desire to rebuild these places where lots of different people can be together, where you can see new things and have new experiences. Well, Omar writes, I will always miss the mall experience. In the early 90s, it felt like the center of the community, much like Europe has town squares. Indoor malls specifically had lots of places to relax and pass the time. Let me go to Winston in Oakland. Hi, Winston. Hi, thank you. Um, your guest, Alexander Lang, I understand that your book is about nostalgia mostly. Do I have that right? 
it's actually a lot i mean i i would say it's like saying that people have nostalgia but explaining why and talking about where we might go with them yeah so not cover a lot yeah, the, yeah. the nostalgia of the mall experience but uh, and i i really you know i'm sure most of us can totally appreciate that and i certainly do but i just feel like you can't talk about malls these days without talking about the death of the american mall i mean there's mm -hmm. entire communities online that are dedicated to exploring dead or nearly dead malls in fact there's a subreddit called dead malls it's reddit.com slash r slash dead malls um there's youtube channels where people explore abandoned places and many many of their videos will be of dead malls or nearly dead malls i've seen videos of malls where there will be like literally one store left in the entire mall and some of the anchor stores will have been boarded over and someone of course like will cut a hole into the plywood so that they can go inside and look and yeah. you will have like holes in the roof of like a former macy's where there's rainwater dripping in and there's mold everywhere and it's like hazardous to be in there yeah and there's light fixtures crumbling off the ceiling and this is in a place where there's still a store that you can go to and winston it, i'm, I'm so, yeah i'm so glad you're bringing up dead malls because it is a huge part of how we think of malls these days and alexander you do devote quite a lot in your book to talking about that phenomenon so many obituaries have been written about the mall what do you think of that um yeah no i am definitely familiar with those videos and those online communities um because they are fascinatingly viral um i think the dead mall images especially have blotted out a lot of people's memories of live malls um, because they're very beautiful images and they fit into this longer history of kind of ruin porn um, that we're familiar with. And we love mm. the kind of like thrill and drama of these you know desolate landscapes. Um, and we're seeing it for these late 20th century places as well as for, you know, 19th century and earlier ruins. Um, that said, I think that people don't realize that there are still hundreds of live malls. Um, you know, at, at, at the, their peak, there were probably 2,000 malls in the U.S. Um, more recently, I think pre-pandemic, there are 1,200. And, and a lot of analysts are predicting like a significant mall die-off of perhaps 30% or more. But that still means that there are hundreds of live malls, even if the like, imagery and discussion of dead malls tends to dominate. Um, so, yeah. But yeah. what has been driving the mall death is it ah, just yes. online shopping or yeah um it's it's not just online shopping um pre-pandemic online shopping accounted for about 15 percent of retail sales um there are basically three three different reasons for the death of the mall and you know one of the most prominent is actually the death of the department store um so while i think some malls are going to continue to live i think that department stores by and large are on a permanent decline um and so 
what's happening now is essentially like the high-end department stores like Nordstrom and Neiman Marcus are doing well, but the market for more middle-class department stores like Macy's, JCPenney, Sears, Sears has really been hollowed out. And the people that used to shop at those stores now shop at Target and Walmart and Burlington Coat Factory. Um, and so malls that had those stores as anchors really uh, need to find new anchors or they're not going to be able to last. Well, Mary writes, you can put me in any city on any continent and I can make my way around a mall because that was my natural habitat growing up. To this day, my husband marvels at my ability to track through a mall like a bloodhound. I know where the food court is going to be. I can tell you which end has Gap or Uniqlo and which end is going to have Tiffany's. Honestly, my version of nature might just be an atrium. <laughs> this sounds a lot like you talking about, um, Alexandra, how you're you describe people as sort of like mall natives or someone who can really go through a mall and just know intuitively how it's laid out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Tiffany is going to be near, if there are say two anchor stores at the mall, the Tiffany is going to be near the higher end anchor store because there tends to be kind of a luxury row of shops um, and affiliated with that anchor. Um, the food court is probably going to be on the second story, um, up, like adjacent to the atrium so that you can see it and, and but not smell it when you first come in. But once you go up the escalator, you're going to be able to smell it. And you know, the Cinnabon or the Auntie Anne's is going to draw you in. So yeah, there are a lot of very recognizable patterns in malls. Um, once you, you know, know how to look for them. Yeah. And chances are you'll be hearing some mall soft music. Uh, this is a meme playing popular songs that are mall shopping friendly, like the one that we're about to go into the break listening to. We're talking about malls with Alexandra Lang and we'll have more after the break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. That's from Mean Girls just before Regina and her click the plastics. Head to the mall, because that's what we're talking about this hour with Alexandra Lang. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking to Alexandra, author of Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of the mall, about 
the mall's role in our social and cultural life and, and the significance that it's had historically as well. And we're hearing your favorite mall memories and stories. And Janice writes, how can you talk about the mall without mentioning Clueless? You definitely mentioned Clueless in your book, Alexandra Lang. <laughs> talk yes. about why that was such an important yeah. film for the mall. <laughs> Yeah, people and keep asking me what's my favorite mall movie. And I was like, <laughs> Clueless, because Clueless is one of my favorite movies, full stop. But um, the moment in Clueless that I talk about in the book is the moment where Cher and Christian have been shopping at the mall and they kind of come up on the escalator to the second floor and they're framed by the barrel vaulted glass roof of the mall. And it's almost like a halo for them. They are the beautiful people. They're framed by the atrium and, and the mall architecture is kind of underlining their primacy in the social set of the high school and of the mall. Um, so I feel like one of the interesting things that you start to see around the edges of all these teen movies of, of the mall is how they kind of use the architecture and the architecture becomes a commentary on the characters. And it was really interesting to kind of go back through like these movies that, you know, I had seen in the theater organically um, and, and figure out kind of what they were saying about the mall and how they were using the mall. Well, I, I want to read just a few more and then just get into the demise of the mall. Caroline writes, I got my first, my, I got my ears pierced at a Claire's with a piercing gun at the Mall of America on my 10th birthday, immediately after riding a log ride inside. I remember my cousin kissing a life-size cutout of Orlando Bloom. Big day. <laughs> and uh, uh, Linda writes, in the 80s, we lived in the sunset and my preteen daughter would hang with her friends at Stonestown Mall before it was enclosed. They had zero spending money. So I asked her what they did there. And she said, we chase the boys. Um, let me go to caller Dan in Palo Alto. Hi, Dan. Hi. Um, I just wanted to mention uh, there is a sort of an earlier history about the malls. My dad was a small business owner, and he owned about five stores selling women's clothes around the Bay Area. And he had a store in Richmond. And when the mall opened, Hilltop Mall, it kind of sucked a lot of the vibrancy out of the downtown Richmond area. And it became very difficult for people to maintain their, their retail environment. And the downtown went into decline. Rents were higher at Hilltop. And I don't know if you've noticed, but Hilltop Mall no longer exists. And I think the downtown is on its way back up, but the malls, when they opened, they did have an effect. Yeah. So that's, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about, Alexandra. Thanks for bringing that into the conversation. And I'm sorry that happened to your dad's small business, but it really Oh, he did fine. Oh, good. <laughs> glad. Um, okay, good. Really glad to hear that. But there was a history of how malls could hurt small businesses. And it's interesting, like we've been talking about Clueless and we've been talking about the malls of the 80s. And it really feels like that was the mall heyday. But um, in your book, you talk about how actually it was as early as the late 70s when people were starting to get disenchanted with malls, uh, partly because of this effect. But can you just talk about that decline? 
Sure. I mean, a lot of the uh, early, you know, investors and anchors for mall malls were these department stores that were huge presences downtown. Um, and the owners of those department stores were really nervous about the suburbs. And it took them a while to agree to go into the malls in the suburbs because they predicted quite accurately that it would suck um, the life and customers out of many downtowns. So they knew this was going to happen, but they felt kind of powerless to stop it because they also realized that all of those customers in the suburbs did not want to drive all the way back downtown with their kids in tow to do some shopping. There was just, you know, a structural problem with this. So they moved out to the suburbs. And then, yes, by the mid 70s, there was a lot of um, stories about downtowns being hollowed out and what could we do and actually one of the things that a lot of downtowns did about 200 um, in the 70s and early 80s was make pedestrian streets to try to make their downtown a little bit more like the mall um, which is just a kind of fascinating cyclical history that I feel like um, your caller was also referring to that you know like first there was downtown and then there was the mall and then the mall went out and now maybe downtown is coming back back again. Yeah. Let me go to call our Kira in Oakland. Hi, Kira. Hi. I was calling um, just to find out. Um, I'm a kid of the 90s, so malls had a huge uh, influence and part of my um, I was saying what they're going to do with these closed mall spaces. Um, are there any plans? It's a lot of acreage, including the parking lots, and um, I've I grew up in the East Bay, and Hilltop Mall was our mall, but now it's it's pretty much like Amazon, <laughs> um, and it's pretty gross. But I just wanted—I guess it's necessary—but I wanted to know uh, what, if any, plans um, to kind of beautify this this now stain in our in our local area. Um, what are what? Yeah, is there plans for mall? Kira, thanks such a great question in terms of, okay, they are surviving, as you say, but there is a die-off and there are all these empty spaces. What have you been hearing that you think would be the right way to go in terms of ways to use these spaces? Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things that I really wanted to focus on towards the end of the book. Like, how can malls be used creatively? Um, because yes, some have become Amazon fulfillment centers, but that's not really great for the suburb or su suburban or urban environment around them. And it's not really giving back to the community in the way that malls originally did. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is, you know, most interesting as a possibility for malls is really to create denser, more mixed use environments in a lot of these suburbs that have densified and also diversified over the years. Um, and one of the best examples of that is in Austin, where Austin Community College bought the old Highland Mall in um, concert with developers, and they have built a community campus in some of the old mall buildings. Um, there's also the headquarters for the local public TV station, and then they've built new housing on the parking lot. So what was, you know, a mall plonked in the middle of this big, empty, gray parking lot is now a mixed-use community um, where students come every day, and it's even on a light rail station. So, I mean, that's like a big vision, but I think more places with dead malls um, need to start thinking that big. 
Well, Steve tweets, I was wondering if you had any insights on international malls. I went to Thailand a few years ago and was really surprised by the mega mall culture there. They took up multiple blocks. You could walk long swaths of Bangkok without leaving a mall. Uh, yeah. In the last part of my book, I talk about basically malls elsewhere because we think of them as such an American thing. But, you know, from the 1960s on, there has been, you know, mall culture in Asia, mall culture in Europe, mall culture in South America. Um, Asian malls are particularly interesting because they tend to be very urbanized. Um, you know, they are accessible by public transportation, they're often vertical, and they often incorporate a lot of public services, um, which is another thing that I think the U.S. needs to think harder about in terms of malls. Let me go to caller Catherine in Menlo Park. Hi, Catherine. Hi. Yeah, you talk about the, the malls in Asia. There's one, I think it's either Chengdu or Chengqing, that's so big, it has a giant uh, beach, like huge, huge, huge. And the wall is a screen that looks like uh, you're in Hawaii, and it has a wave machine that comes at you. It's absolutely phenomenal. But anyway, the reason I called is the, the thing I lament uh, is the malls used to be part of your education growing up. It used to be everybody that worked in a mall, except for the management, were high school kids. And that shock of getting your first paycheck and realizing the government just took half of it. You know, the trying to, to figure out how to save this, how to open up bank accounts. Nobody, the, the kids don't work in malls anymore. And I think that's kind of what is, has changed a lot of the vibe. My first job was working in a pet store, Jerry's Perfect Pets. And um, we were all close friends. We were really tight. More than 30 years later, I'm still friends with the manager. Mm. And it changed my life. He taught me how to hand feed parrots when I was working there. Long story short, I ended up living in the Amazon jungle uh, working with parrots living with magic Indian indigenous people you know, all that opportunity that amazing experience I wouldn't have had had I not had a mall job you know as a teenager and I, I really wish that my kids now had that experience of, of working in a mall and the camaraderie and it's a safe space you have security the kids can run free and you have a relative notion that, that nothing's going to happen to them Yeah. and uh, anyway so that's, that's kind of what I agree well, well, Catherine, thanks for, for sharing that. We're getting some more calls about about mall jobs. So let me go to Scott really quick. Scott in Martinez. Yeah. Hey, thanks. A um, little, little bit of pressure after that last call. But um, but I um, uh, worked uh, at the uh, Chuck E. Cheese at the Willows in Concord here uh, when it first opened in 1980 and um, did a little research Afterwards, and uh, uh, legend has it that I was the first uh, person to actually wear the rat costume <laughs> and walk around and greet the guests. And it was uh, predictably very hot and sweaty and gross and got my head and tail pulled a lot and people <laughs> making out or worse, like in the little crawl spaces between the stories. And but But it was all made worth it by the fact that our manager, after we closed, would like refire up the ovens and give us all like free beer uh while i was 16 uh and and pizza and um just let us like uh gave us tokens to run free in the arcade you know in kind of the golden age of arcade games and um i just can't imagine like a situation like that occurring uh today well scott first of all 
Thank you. It's an honor to meet the first Chuck E. Cheese. Appreciate the uh, celebrity call there. And uh, I do want to ask sure. Alexandra about your point about whether or not, you know, our view of that not ever really happening anymore is accurate. But before I do, let me just remind listeners that you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Alexander Lang, there is a lot of that. I think there was another comment that we had gotten earlier, though I think the person is no longer on the line, who just, who who does feel that what there was in terms of the mall in its best form is not something that we can replicate. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think there are still malls where teenagers are hanging out and wandering around. I don't think that's completely gone. Um, but I do think it's much harder today. And like I I live in Brooklyn and I have a teen and a tween and I see them kind of going out into the city. And what they're doing are a lot of the things that I used to do at the mall. You know, they're getting bubble tea. They're going to a thrift store. <laughs> you know, they're going to... Um, you know, look at gifts and something that would be like, you know, Spencer gifts, but it, you know, it's, it's not a chain. And so I feel like teenagers aren't that different now, but they, yeah, they don't have these opportunities. And I do think that that is a loss. Um, I also think the loss of teenage jobs um, is, is, is too bad. And also, you know, a lot of people talk about kind of what happens at the mall after hours. I think that's another really interesting space where a lot of different people kind of came together um, yeah. and romances happened and you learned things from people that you wouldn't otherwise have encountered in that kind of, you know, post lights starting to turn off mall space. So yeah, I think it it is a loss for, you know, kind of culture and social life and growing up. Well, Mike tweets, I have this recollection that the types of stores were much different in the 80s with more variety and fewer large chains. But by the 90s, 2000s, they were pretty much all clothing and accessories. Has your guest researched that? Uh, I haven't researched that kind of specific change, but I think, you know, in the early days of malls, but this is more like the 1950s and 1960s, there were just fewer large chain stores. Um, you start to see a lot of consolidation in the retail industry in the 80s and 90s. So the department stores are no longer, you know, the department, this particular department store of Detroit, but like more of them become Macy's and things like that. Um, so I think that the specificity did wane, but I would actually like put that kind of waning of specificity a little bit earlier than the 90s. Hmm. Well, Kate writes, growing up in Western Massachusetts in the 80s, the mall was the place to be. The second level was a roller rink with glass walls looking down to the shops below, aptly named Interstate 91. The mall was near Interstate 91. And as soon as we heard Rock Lobster, it was time to skate backwards. <laughs> Another listener tweets, I pulled over in the car to tweet that the Oak Ridge Mall in San Jose in the late 90s was our mall. It was shiny, glossy independence for me, especially Hot Topic. I love all the Hot Topic references. Um, you know, what current innovations are you seeing that you're really excited about, Alexander, that you think will give malls legs, will will play the role or the function of being a communal space that you think is what it really does serve as at its best core function? Yeah. 
Well, one of the most interesting trends, and this is definitely, you know, true in a lot of Bay Area suburbs, is the rise of more ethnocentric malls. You know, the the racial makeup of the suburbs has changed tremendously since the 1960s, and there are now many more of what are referred to as ethnoburbs. And the malls um, in those suburbs have changed to reflect those communities. So there are Asian malls of all stripes, there are Latinx malls, there are African malls, and those tend to be much stronger, you know, community places um, than a lot of the kind of chain store, more generic malls. And so I think that is one way that the malls in a lot of places are going to come back, um, kind of returning to that more individualized and place specific uh, curation of stores. Um, a lot of those malls also tend to be more food centric. So um, you'll have, you know, delicacies from that part of the world, but also a market and a much bigger food court and, you know, a playground for the kids. Um, so they are not like the same as a mall everywhere, but they're a mall that's made specifically for that place. And it, if you had to, we just have less than a minute left, but if you had to sum up just what the public role of a mall is and should be, what what would you what would that list include that we haven't touched on yet? Uh, I mean, I guess I just really think of them as somewhere to go. You know, people want to be with people. Um, I say this in the introduction to the book, and they need a place that isn't too far and isn't too complicated and isn't too expensive to do that in. And I think malls have provided that and they can provide that again. Well, Alexandra Lang, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. Alexandra's book is Meet Me by the Fountain, an inside history of malls. Thank you, listeners, for sharing your mall memories, your thoughts and insights on malls. And also, thank you, Grace Bond, for producing today's segment. You have been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.